You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Podcast. We haven't spent a lot of time here talking about the Penn State abuse scandal, Jerry Sandusky, Joe Paterno, Mike McQuery, the whole ugly mess. Uh, I was just at the gym before I came here to record the podcast, listening to them talk on MSNBC about the first Sandusky hearing today where, where Mike McQuery testified. Mike McQuery is the assistant coach who witnessed, uh, allegedly, Jerry Sandusky uh, having intercourse, raping, rape, 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 it's rape, uh, a 10 to 12-year-old boy in the shower. And in, in his testimony today, he said he did what he could to stop it by making eye contact with Jerry Sandusky and slamming a locker. Uh, I don't want to dwell on this, but when you see a child being raped, and I actually really don't feel that I need to – this is something that people who listen to the Savage Lovecast need to be told. But when you see a child being raped – Clearing your throat, making eye contact, slamming a locker, that's not intervening. That's not stopping it. That's not only the least you can do, uh, it's actually nothing. Nothing at all. You know this. Everybody I think who can hear the sound of my voice knows this. Clearing your throat, making eye contact, slamming a locker. Not what you do when you see a child being raped. You stop it. You call the police. I'm not going to sink too much more time into this. Not much of a rant this week. We're going to get right to your calls and a, a very special guest who has some things to say about this very topic. This episode is brought to you by AdamandEve.com, where you can find over 18,000 adult entertainment products for every lifestyle. To receive 50% off most any item, plus three adult DVDs, plus an extra gift, plus free shipping, visit AdamandEve.com and enter SAVAGE at checkout. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling um, because I have a very serious question. I recently discovered that my boyfriend of two years had some kiddie porn on his computer. Um, there were mostly teen and pre-teenage girls in the bus, but there were also a few pictures of eight to ten-year-old girls who were clothed but in pr- provocative poses. Horrified by my discovery, I immediately started making plans to leave him. After calming down and a day or so later, I found some local sex therapist. Um, and a week later, after I discovered the pictures, I confronted my boyfriend to um, tell him what I'd seen. Um, he was remorseful, and he's been seeing um, <clears throat> uh, the specialist for treatment ever since. Um, it's been about a month. He says that he never wants to do this again, and the psychiatrist says that he's certain that he won't. I still love him, and um, my big fear is that because someday I want to have kids, um, I'm afraid that this is going to come back and haunt me if I stay with him. This one's a little bit above my pay grade, I feel. So joining me by phone to help me field this question, Dr. James Cantor, who's a psychologist and professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto and the editor-in-chief of the research journal Sexual Abuse, who recently made headlines all over with his research using MRIs to study the causes of pedophilia. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Cantor. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for uh, chatting with me. Uh, the first question I wanted to put to you is, uh, can this woman really trust, not the boyfriend, but the psychiatrist who's told her that she's certain that her boyfriend will never do this again? Can that be said with any certainty about anything, least of all an interest in child pornography? Uh, it's a tough one always. It's tough to make that kind of an estimate with any kind of certainty at all, in, even in the best of circumstances. Uh, I can't say that the person is, uh, either that the person is no risk or is uh, complete, uh, at complete risk, and uh, by marrying him, and, uh, marrying him and having kids with him, that the woman is subjecting her future children to abuse. It's, we can't say anything definite in either direction. Uh, and neither, of course, can her psychiatrist. Now, there do exist certain uh, methods that, uh, that we, uh, we can use that are called formally risk prediction, but really those are designed for uh, uh, figuring out which people who have already committed an offense 
how likely they are to commit another offense. We know very, very little about someone who's committed no offense and what lies uh, lies in their future. And why is that? That's that's almost you. You've written about this. We've talked about it before. That's almost by design that we know so little about people who haven't offended. Uh, yes, it's unfortunate. Uh, ever since they started uh, passing uh, mandatory uh, uh, reporting laws, we haven't been getting people like like this guy uh, coming in with uh, uh, saying, "Doc, I got a problem." So we can't trace them, and there's no way to see what happens long term uh, in their futures. They kind of stay. They get uh, they stay hidden. They stay under wraps and unknown to the rest of us. Okay, we're we're yeah. going to have to unpack that very quickly for people whose heads are exploding in the wake of the Penn State and the Sandusky thing. That we're not saying that people who have witnessed or know of actual sexual abuse shouldn't report. They should go straight to the police. Right, exactly. Slamming a locker or clearing your throat uh, are not uh, how you intervene when you see a child being raped or you know of a child being raped. But these laws require people, medical professionals, psychiatrists doctors that someone may go to and say, I have these urges, I have these desires, what do I do? They require them to report that person who hasn't actually committed any crimes, who's reaching out for help to prevent them from committing crimes. And so it it prevents people, it inhibits people from seeking help if they need help, knowing that their doctors are legally obligated to basically turn them in. Exactly. It's turning the, uh, uh, the mental health professionals and the physicians into police instead of doing what we're actually trained to do. Instead well, you, you, of providing help, we just end up with uh, uh, with people who are attracted to children now afraid to come in they're still circulating in society but they're not getting any help anymore and but you you don't oppose mandatory reporting for people who know of actual acts of sexual or abuse of children or the rape of children it's a tough tough call it's nice to be uh, if you're witnessing abuse and you need to stop it you need to stop it when you're only hearing about it in the context of a therapeutic relationship it's a pretty tough call if the person tells you and you report them, well, we save the one, chi- uh, one child, but we also put at risk the tens of thousands of other, uh, uh, of other people who, are, uh, uh, who are, uh, would then not come into therapy knowing that they would get reported. We're kind of between a rock and a hard place. No, tough. So what, what would your advice be to this girl in this situation? I, I've gotten letters like this before, questions like this before, and I've always sort of been stumped by them. I know how I would react if I was in that situation and I discovered that my partner was viewing child pornography. I don't think I could continue in that relationship because it would just be too toxic. It would eat away at me, that, that knowledge. I think most people feel, uh, feel that way. If they're not uh, yet highly invested in the, uh, in the relationship, in the back of their minds, they're always going to be worried about their own future kids, which is understandable. These people, uh, it's fair to say that they would be at elevated risk you know, elevated, you know, fractions of a, uh, of a percent, but we don't know by how much, and we don't know if it's changed when, uh, when the topic is something that the two parents can discuss with each other. Most of the situations that really go south is with one parent is hiding it from the other, and it only becomes apparent when the kid gets hurt. Mm. Or somebody else's kids get hurt. Or somebody else's kids get hurt. So what do, what do you know now about uh, pedophilia and pedophiles due to your research and using MRIs and basically looking at their brains? Well, we've been look- my team has been looking at this now for about 10 years, and it started only looking very indirectly at the brain. We were measuring IQ. We were measuring uh, uh, memory functioning. We, uh, mem- uh, we tested different ways that the brain works. And again and again, we kept finding uh, these clues saying that their brains don't function in quite the same way. We even found that uh, uh, about 30% of pedophiles are left-handed instead of, uh, you know, 10%-ish of, uh, of non-pedophiles. Well, the only way that a person is left-handed is brain organization. And we also know that that level of brain organization happens before birth. So that told us that no matter what the chain of events is that leads to pedophilia, that chain of events started before birth. Once we had all of those data, that's when we uh, started being able to do uh, the large research projects using MRIs, uh, comparing uh, brain scans of pedophiles with uh, brain scans of people who committed non-sexual kinds of, uh, kinds of offenses. So I was comparing people who were in jail with one reason with people who were in jail with, uh, uh, for non-sexual reasons. And what we found are very, very large differences in what's called white matter in the brains uh, of pedophiles. It seems that the different areas of the brain that together are responsible for identifying what, uh, what in the environment might be a sexual object, that that network isn't functioning properly. Instead of uh, seeing or perceiving a kid and evoking the uh, uh, parental or nurturant responses, it's instead uh, uh, evoking the sexual responses. 
it's almost like there's a literal cross-wiring in the brain where one social instinct is getting poked instead of the other social instinct. Well, what do, you know, backing up, you know, circling back to the caller's question, is everybody who looks at child pornography a pedophile on, who is going to offend? Do, can we even answer these questions? Partly. We have had uh, large samples of people who were uh, convicted of uh, possessing or distributing child pornography, and three-quarters of them, two, uh, uh, three-quarters, two-thirds of them will test out uh, to be pedophilic if you actually give them what we call a phallometric test. Essentially, essentially it's a, uh, an erection detector. You show them pictures of adults, pictures of children, and see what they react to. So of the men who collect or distribute or create child porn, the majority of them are genuinely pedophilic. But there isn't a lot of good evidence to say that these people go on to actually become child molesters. A lot of them will use pictures to kind of take the curb off of their own desires, masturbate, and they do that instead of actually or instead of directly hurting a child. This is, you know, we wrote, you, you uh, were a guest expert in Savage Love, and I coined a, a term that I called the gold star pedophile. Yep, it's which a great term, by the way. Folks who get no credit, and, and you know, everybody wants to kill all the pedophiles, and right now in the wake of uh, the Sandusky case at Penn State, everyone is very exercised about all of this. And what a lot of people don't seem to realize, and what I hear about all the time, because I get letters from people who are really burdened with, terrified by, terrorized by these desires that they did not one day decide, I'm going to be a kid fucker, and this is what I want to do with my life, or these are the sexual acts that I'm going to decide <laughs> appeal to me. People struggle against these desires all their life with no support, no ability to reach out, no ability to go to a psychiatrist, no ability to sit in a, a room uh, in a support group setting and find out about other st the strategies that other people who are burdened with similar desires have used to avoid offending. Yep. And yet so many of these people never offend. They, they do this all on their own in complete isolation, struggle against these desires mightily all their lives. And how do we create a space that doesn't allow for or excuse the Sanduskis of the world but gives some credit to these people who are really burdened with these desires? It's almost a birth defect the way you describe it. Yeah. Uh, and that provides some support to them to prevent them from offending. Yeah, no, it's one of the areas that uh, the U.S. could really take a lesson uh, from uh, partly Canada and partly in Germany where they have created anonymous programs, sometimes they're call-in, sometimes they're face-to-face, -face, uh, where people can actually get these feelings uh, off their chest, share the, the feelings of isolation with other people in the same boat, and have someone to call if they feel like that they're getting overly tempted and they need, some, some, uh, they need to talk to somebody who gets it, who understands it, who's trained to, uh, to process it. Uh, my two favorite uh, programs like that, one is for people who have never committed an offense, and one is for people who have committed an offense and are working hard never to commit another one. Uh, the program for people who have never done anything is the German program. It's called uh, Prevention Project Dunkelfeld. Uh, now, in Germany, they don't have mandatory reporting laws. So a person can go to a psychologist, psychiatrist, physician, and talk about this without, you know, fear of, uh, uh, of immediately being uh, sent to jail or immediately getting uh, swept into a hospital system. Uh, a system we have in, uh, in Canada for people who have uh, uh, committed an offense, served their time, are getting released into, uh, uh, re being re-released into society and are looking for help while they're in society is called the Circles of Support and Accountability. This is where the uh, uh, person, after he's released, he's the center of the circle, and then uh, around him is a group of volunteers. Uh, uh, very often they come from churches, but, uh, but not uh, always. And they uh, help these people kind of reintegrate into society. They provide a social support system because uh, nobody, you know, who knows the person's history really will be around them. They often replace their own families. And they just give, uh, help these people uh, find jobs, find places to live, because a lot of the reoffenses happen when the pedophile feels like he has nothing left to lose. When he has nothing left to lose, that's when he's not going to protect his own life and not care about protecting anybody else's. Unfortunately, the really draconian policies that the U.S. has forces everybody to have nothing to lose. It actually makes more risky situations the more, uh, the more society tries to turn the screw on these people. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a tragedy. You know, everybody wants to punish, and I believe they should be punished. And as you know, a parent of a, of a child 
Um, I would, you know, I see red when I read about what would happen in that shower at Penn State because yep. you just, you automatically, you know, and I'm not saying that people who aren't parents who don't have children can't empathize, can't put themselves in the shoes of parents or, or, of people who've been sexually abused, even the children. Everyone was a child once. But there's something about reading about a 10-year-old child being raped that you just flash on that happening to your own kid. And yep. it makes you homicidal and it can make you feel that there's no punishment severe enough for someone who's done that. But what nobody seems to realize is that as we ramp up and ramp up and ramp up the punishments based on your research and observations and, uh, and everything else we know, we're actually creating a system that leads to the rapes of more children. That's, that's starting to be what it, uh, what it looks like. Now, uh, once, it's, uh, once the situation has, uh, has happened, it's happened. Now, society has, of course, every right to mete out whatever punishment it feels, uh, uh, it feels is appropriate. That's, what, that, that's a part of what society does. But we shouldn't mistake punishment from prevention. We know that punishment does not actually prevent these crimes. So although society can punish because punishment is, is the ethically appropriate thing to do in society, we should not forget that that doesn't count as prevention. Prevention looks very different from punishment. We, we, we should uh, – will you hang out for a couple more questions? Absolutely. And, and let's quickly circle back to, you know, this woman called to ask for advice. She, when people ask her that, they want to know what you think they should do. What do we think she should do? Should she be part of this – boyfriend's, you know, accountability circle like these uh, systems you've described in Germany and, and Canada, you know, if she abandons him, if he has nothing, to, if she contributes to that cycle of nothing to lose, uh, is she, you know, is she obligated to stay? Is she, uh, what, what, what do you think she should do in this instance? Well, I always hesitate, hesitate to say that anyone is obligated to stay in, uh, in any relationship. And it's always really difficult to say under what circumstances. Under what circumstances has a, promise, has a person already promised to be there you know, through thick and through thin, and now it's time for some thick? I mean, this kind of a disclosure really says that her entire future with this guy will be very different from what she thought when she got into the relationship. I think she said uh, it's, it was uh, two years uh, into it. It's a tough, tough call. Now, there are people who you know, reasonably decide they won't have kids together. For some couples, that's okay. For others, it's not. Uh, but uh, her view of her relationship is, is going to be very different from what it was, uh, and she, in the back of her head, is always going to be wondering what things are like when her back is turned. Now, that's not always fair to a, uh, uh, to a guy who hasn't done anything. There's no evidence that he wants to do anything, uh, uh, that, he has, uh, that he has a lack of ability to, uh, to control himself, but it's up to her to decide, does she want to spend her life with somebody who is struggling with this? And we can assume at the moment, you know, successfully you know, as her best circumstance. Okay, we're going to take another call after this. Looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com for a limited time only. You'll get 50% off just about any item. And that's not all. There's more. You'll also receive three free adult DVDs plus a free extra gift plus free shipping on your entire order. Check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. That's adamandeve.com and enter Savage at checkout. Uh, hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 25-year-old from uh, the Midwest. Um, I, uh, I recently had a very um, kind of disturbing situation. I, uh, I recently went on a date. Um, with someone, and it actually, I thought it went really well. Um, oh, and I'm a, I'm a gay male, and um, and uh, he, uh, you know, I, I felt like I really kind of clicked with him, and um, but, and he was really attractive, but um, I tried to search for him online. Um, I went to a social networking site and tried to find his profile to learn more about him, and. Um, I don't find anything about him, but instead I find a, a news article, um, and and I open it up, and it uh, it's talking about um, a man that um, had been arrested for soliciting sex from a 14-year-old. Um, apparently, had offered um, some cash, um, and I was just I, I had no idea. 
had reacted to this. The picture sort of looked like him. I uh, I searched online, um, and he was and he was indeed on the sex offenders list. Um, and I just like I don't I don't know whether I should completely ignore him from now on, or whether you know maybe I should just because you know I don't like to uh, be the kind of person to just completely cut off contact with somebody. I've always felt like that was kind of a sh- shitty thing to do um, to a date, but, um, but you know, this is pretty messed up, though, um, so I I don't even know if I should even bother even trying to contact him back, um, or whether I should maybe hear his side of the story. Maybe there was something that happened that wasn't portrayed right in the paper. I, I don't know. Someone who's attracted to 14-year-olds isn't the same as someone who's attracted to prepubescence. There's a distinction. Uh, yeah, and, and we have uh, uh, different words for them. Uh, usually, technically, a pedophile is somebody who's attracted to prepubescent children. Uh, people who are attracted to pubescent-aged children, roughly 11 to 14, uh, we call hebephiles, H-E-B-E. And what is the difference there? Uh, really, the only difference is their their main age uh, of attraction. Uh, the pedophiles preferred, uh, uh, sexually preferred uh, kids who were uh, completely hairless. There's uh, no evidence of uh, adult maturation. They, their voice hasn't changed yet. They haven't started to uh, to grow yet. Uh, hebophiles prefer body shapes that have some signs of maturation, but have not hit complete adolescence. They're they're not uh, uh, just very young-looking. They look more like children than they do like uh, uh, like teens. Does they like little wisps of pubic hair, but not full adult coarse pubic hair, breast buds, but not fully developed breasts, and so on. Does it drive people in the field crazy the way the term pedophile is just tossed around? So liber- I got a letter the other day from a, a woman whose uh, 17-year-old son was having a rela- in a relationship with a 28-year-old, and the whole family was freaking out and accusing this 28-year-old of being a pedophile. No, that that really is. It's that's uh, more smoke and mirrors than anything else. It's just not realistic to call somebody. Uh, and any age uh, relationship with an age difference shouldn't be called a, a pedophilic. I mean, we use the terms more precisely in scientific settings. You know, if somebody was attracted to a twelve or thirteen year old, you know, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't balk. Uh, unfortunately, there uh, are, however, some. Uh, uh, both some activists and defense experts who try to twist the words, you know, for the purposes of their particular clients uh, uh, and so on. But uh, generally, no mental health professional would diagnose anyone uh, unless their primary sexual interests were in somebody 14 or younger. So the, the, this guy who went online, found out this guy, attractive guy, they had a great date, he, they, they, you know, there was a connection, he doesn't have a lot invested in this relationship, mm-hmm. gets online, finds out he is a registered sex offender because he solicited sex from a from a 14-year-old, which seems terribly young to me. Uh, yeah, no, 14, uh, 14 does seem young. Uh, but I've seen a wide range of uh, things. I've seen a wide range of things go on. I've seen uh, 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 14-year-olds who look 17 and somebody who likes kind of young partners ends up uh, hitting on or soliciting somebody younger than they originally intended. I've also seen mistakes on, on some of these lists. Uh, so I think it probably mistakes, is, oh, mistakes on sex offender registries. Uh, of all kinds. I've found uh, people who were uh, convicted under circumstances that are questionable. Uh, and a lot of the investigations, especially the early uh, investigations, were done in, uh, in pretty hysterical circumstances. So just on the basis of what's found on the computer, I would hesitate to make any kinds of life uh, decisions, especially when it's essentially disappearing from someone's life and they're only going to follow you. I I would recommend that, too. You know, I think I don't think the caller should pretend not to know something he damn well does know. Uh, I do think that he should, you know, at least give the guy a chance to explain uh, what went on and to, you know, a lot of people who've committed sex offenses will minimize or misrepresent. So explain and verify in some way, provide documentation if if his story is different than what's out there uh, or is, uh, you know, what's out there is black and white and there is more gray there uh, to let the guy make his case and then make a judgment about whether you think he's telling the truth. I get letters every day at Savage Love from 14, 15, 16, 17 year old gay boys who are desperate for affection. Uh, there aren't appropriate targets for their uh, affection in their schools uh, and in their homes. Their parents aren't letting them date or they're you know, in a school in a small town. They're the only out gay kid. And they go online and they do sometimes 
uh, and I'm not blaming the victims here, they do misrepresent themselves. They will say yeah. when they are 14 or 15 that they are 17 or 18 and will you know, get into conversations with older gay men, uh, some of whom you know, I don't think should be trawling the internet looking for people who are on that edge or looking for high school seniors at all. Um, but there are, you know, this, and this caller, uh, I'm addressing you caller, this could be the case here. Yeah. Um, you have to, you liked him. He seemed like a decent guy. I think at the very least you need to say, so I Googled you and this is what I found out. What's up with that? And then yep. make a call. No, I, I think that's, uh, that's very fair is that he needs to check out the situation. And if he's going to leave the relationship, to leave the relationship like an adult. Okay. Let's take the next call. Hi, Dan. Um, let's see. 29-year-old bi female. So this is kind of my own fault because I'm at my boyfriend's place, waiting for him to get back on his computer, checking out all the different sites he's checked out. Um, tranny porn? Okay. I've listened to your show a long time. You know, whatever floats his boat. Um, pictures of little girls in bikinis? Not so great. I'm actually a little freaked out right now. You know, it's not, they don't look like subjugated. They don't look like, that. I don't know. That, that should be like a no-go, right? Absolutely not. I'm just asking because, you know, sometimes I read erotica and, you know, incest erotica and power play erotica and everything else. But it's not really the same thing, is it? This isn't child porn. This isn't a sex offense. This is just that kind of porn that unnerves some people when they find it on their partner's computer where the people could be 20 or the person could be 15. Just like that 15-year-old who looks older, there are some older people who look younger. And she says little girls in bikinis. I'm assuming she doesn't – if it was child porn, she would have said so uh, and been unambiguous about it because she's obviously unnerved by what she found and she wouldn't underestimate or uh, take the – you know, shave it if it was super disturbing, mildly yeah. disturbing. Um, what do we know about people who are attracted to that adolescent look, body? What does well, the research tell us? What's the advice for people who are – who realize that their partners or discover that their partners are attracted to people who are really on that edge between adolescence and adulthood. It's a, it's a tough call. If they're into what, uh, the hebephilic range, 11 to 14, most of what we know about pedophiles fits, uh, uh, fits the hebephiles. Not all of them and not everything, but, uh, but mostly. Something that really caught me about uh, the caller's question was that uh, the... Uh, the little girls weren't the only atypical people in the pictures. That there were also transsexuals in it. Now, although once we see children, we tend uh, in an erotic context that just kind of eclipses everything else, and we forget about it. Uh oh, this might be child porn. Is this guy a pedophile? But there are some people who are who take who prefer very very broad ranges of uh, of erotica. They'll masturbate to just about anything. They talk about sex itself is interesting. I had one patient once who was on a fetish website, you know, and it had an alphabetical list of different uh, fetish categories, and he would click through them one by one in alphabetical order, masturbating to every single one of them. That's really unusual. People with fetishes and people with, you know, our medical term is paraphilia, tend to have the thing that they're into, and everything else is just as non-sexual to them as it is to everybody else. So if this guy is collecting, again, like she called it uh, tranny porn, and little girls in bikinis, and if there are other things also, he might not actually be a pedophile. He might be somebody who just goes through many, many different kinds of porn for their novelty more than anything else. So I, I, I can't make, of course, any judgment in one direction or another, but pedophilia in this particular case sounds like one of, you know, more than one possibility. Well, it doesn't, does it sound like pedophilia, though? Girls in bikinis? Little girls uh, in oh, bikinis? Oh, it, it could be. Uh, there are genuine pedophiles who will get perfectly legal porn. That is just uh, pictures of, uh, of kids that to them are erotic. You know, it's like uh, uh, what somebody else would see in a swimsuit model. They'll uh, view it, they'll enjoy it, they'll masturbate while watching it. It's just not an illegal image. It doesn't have to be illegal to turn them on. Hmm. 
What's our advice for this woman? Be disturbed. Talk to your boyfriend. Find out if he's just that sort of like every kink in the world Rolodex masturbator, what his deal is. I would go with all of the above. I think it's uh, perfectly worth a conversation, although it's, of course, also going to invite a conversation. What was she doing on his computer? Uh, I think talking about, you know, whether he's attracted to kids and what ways he's attracted to uh, to kids, as well as everything else, is, are, uh, is perfectly legitimate for her. And then, you know, she'll have a decision whether she's comfortable with his uh, his responses or not. I, I'm an outlier on the what are you doing on my computer question, because I believe that people kind of have a right to snoop a bit and that you, it's reasonable to assume that you are being snooped on a bit by a partner who lives with you. Uh, you know, I don't think your partner should go through your shit with a fine tooth comb. Uh, I think there are limits, but uh, I expect that my partner reads my email and once in a while, just as I read his. I hope he's not listening to the podcast. Don't read. I just like sometimes leaves his computer open. And I'm like, oh, like I recognize that name, and I might open that email. Anyway, I, I, one one last question I want to I want to ask you about um, before before we let go. We appreciate you giving us all this time today. My pleasure. Um, when I first met my husband, uh, who is now 40, he was 23 and he looked like he was 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was completely besotted and, and still am uh, now that he's uh, older uh, and bigger than he used to be. Um, still completely into him. And I, I found that you know when we were first hanging out and first going out that some of my friends reacted really negatively. And I was defending myself by saying, I'm, OK, so I'm attracted to a boyish man. But he's still a man. He's got a boyish quality. He looks boyish in the right light. He looks 15. Um, Is this now stigmatized by the the growing awareness of the sexual abuse and sexual exploitation of children? Where is the the space and the culture for people who are attracted to boyish or girlish adults? And they do not have any interest in in children and 11 to 14-year-olds and 14 to 18-year-olds, none whatsoever. But a boyish man is sexually appealing. Do people who have those sorts of desires, you know, the guy who used to ask his wife to put on the Catholic schoolgirl outfit, that used to be something that was kind of an acknowledged, celebrated even fetish or the cheerleader outfit. You don't hear about that so much anymore because this is so thoroughly stigmatized now, this enjoyment of – girlishness or boyishness in an appropriate uh, adult sex partner? Uh, all the combinations happen. Uh, if a person is attracted to a particular other person who happens to look young, I don't think any mental health professional really would uh, uh, would make make much hay of it. Phew! Good for me. Lucky for me there. <laughs> well, especially if the other characteristics of the person are, I'll call them age-appropriate. A person can uh, look much younger on the outside, but their expectations for the future, their desires, their, their uh, mannerisms are all perfectly adult. Uh, the people where we start seeing a problem, uh, they themselves try to act more like children as a part of becoming into the, uh, getting into the child's world. They also do the reverse. They will uh, sometimes meet a child, but treat the child and believe the child uh, uh, does have more adult attitudes or adult interests than the kid really does. So it, it's when it starts kind of warping reality in order to see what you want to see is where we see most of the trouble. Well, thank you very much. That's very reassuring. Glad to know I'm not a hebephiliac in the making. Uh, Jane, Dr. James Cantor, psychologist, professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto, editor-in-chief of the Research General Sexual Abuse. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today and for all of your insights and, and wisdom. Happy to do it. Hi, Dan. I am a 20-year-old female from the Northeast, um, and I am in a wonderful relationship with a, um, a slightly older guy really wonderful. Everything's been perfectly fine for um, the uh, five or so months we've been together. Um, But there's one problem, and it's not with him. He's wonderful. Um, It's with me. I, in my previous relationships, um, well, if you can call them that, um, I've always, you know, flitted around from, from one guy to another. And, um, I guess I have slightly um, promiscuous tendencies, um, and I wouldn't dream of ever physically cheating on my boyfriend, but I have this thing where I really, really like to post pictures of myself online. 
um, anonymously, no faces or anything. And my boyfriend doesn't know this. Um, I mean, I think it has something to do with maybe the naughtiness of it um, that is now lacking in my relationship. I'm not quite sure. Um, And I feel really bad about it, but I don't really want to stop. And I think it would really upset my boyfriend if I told him. If you've been dating for five months, it's a might be a good time to have that. What are you into? What are your kinks? Uh, put your uh, kink cards on the table, as I like to say in the column. Uh, and for you to tell him that, you know, at 20, you're a bit of an exhibitionist. And for him then to ask how your exhibitionism has manifested itself over the years would be the obvious follow-up question. And then you can say, well, I post pictures sometimes online anonymously, no faces, no names, uh, because it, because it turns me on to, to know that people are out there enjoying my body and the internet has given me this this safe way to explore my exhibitionistic interests without taking any risks, without becoming a flasher, uh, without doing porn. Um, and if it upsets him, good. Fuck him if it upsets him. You're a hot 20-year-old sexually adventurous a uh, woman and he's lucky to be with you and getting over his hang up about his presumed hang up. You know, we're making a huge assumption here that he's going to have a problem with this. He might think, oh, my God, I've hit the freaking jackpot. My girlfriend's a bigger freak than I knew. Uh, but, you know, even if he has a problem with it, he needs to to get over it. This is uh, a part of your sexuality and your sexual expression. And if he's going to be your sex partner, uh, he either needs to Sign up for that part of your sexuality and your sexual expression. Learn to love that part of who you are sexually or he needs to ask you honestly and without slut shaming you to knock it off for him because either you know going there with you or letting you go there, that's a price of admission he's going to have to pay to be in this relationship or giving it up if it really does bother him is a price of admission you may have to pay to be in the relationship. But we're just assuming out of the gate that this is going to be a problem and you can't know that it's going to be a problem until you share it with him. I, I guarantee you that there are guys out there with girlfriends who would regard this news as kind of a winning lottery ticket in a way. There are guys out there who certainly regard their girlfriends after five months as their own personal property and possessions that no other man is allowed to look at or think about in a sexual way who would freak the fuck out. They're definitely out there too. But there are guys out there who would dig this. He could be one of those guys. You're never going to find out if he's one of those guys until you risk telling him about what you've been up to and seeing how he reacts. And if he reacts badly, you might want to go find one of those guys who would not react so badly and uh, date him instead. Hey, Dan. 24-year-old male here from the Midwest. Uh, been seeing my fiance for six years now, ever since we were both uh, 18, 19 or so and uh, both 24, 25 now. And we, uh, I recently proposed early November and uh, about a week and a half ago, she came to me and she said she wasn't sure if it was going to work. And I have been depressed for quite a while, probably past two years or so. And she's been trying to help me and she's just out of ideas. And I mean, it's mainly from, going to school and getting a degree and that degree not really meaning crap in the field I want to get into. And also just, I, this past, this past, uh, summer here, this past quarter of the year here, I've worked a 60 hour job doing construction and haven't really gotten time to see her. And that's kind of brought us apart. And she had an old friend of hers that she knew for, quite a long time since she was 14 and they started hanging out. Well, he's also a guy. And after a while he started to develop feelings for her and she wouldn't really want to hang out with me because I was too negative and overstrung from working my 60 hour week job and just uh, kind of a wedge in between us. And she kicked me out the house not so much kicked me out but just said she needed some alone time and I'm down at my parents now and I still talk to her and see her and stuff and we still try to work stuff out and I'm going to see a counselor about my depression and I don't know I mean I just I I haven't gotten you know this is my first time in such a long 
big relationship or long lasting relationship. And I mean, it, it does it seem like we can, uh, should we even continue? I mean, we're, we still cry and talk to each, when we talk to each other about how we miss each other. And there's also this issue of she just hasn't really had any sexual attraction to anyone, even me in the past year or so. And I don't know if it's because she's so been so busy starting her business up and everything. I just, I don't want to, I don't want to lose her. Look on the bright side. You have a job. A lot of people don't have jobs. Uh, you're working 60 hours a week. It's not the field that you want to be in, construction. Construction pays pretty well, so even though you are living at home for the moment with mom and dad, since your girlfriend asked you to move out, uh, you're not trapped there. You're only 24. You can get out of your parents' house. You can get your own place. You can start over and you can regard starting over as an exciting new stage in your very young life. Uh, instead of regarding it as some kind of colossal tragedy, I hear you. I can hear the pain in your voice. You are grieving uh, for something that was that hasn't existed for a while. This relationship that you've been in um, doesn't sound like she made you happy. It doesn't sound like you made her happy. Uh, there wasn't a really strong sexual connection there anymore. Sounds like she's already moved on. It sounds like she's dating someone else and she fears telling you that that's exactly what she's doing, labeling it because she doesn't want to salt your open and obvious wounds. Um, her tiptoeing around that truth, though, is just dragging this out. You know, I don't think anybody out there listening, and I certainly, uh, after listening to your call, uh, would regard this relationship as anything but over. Some people are going to think that's really mean of me to have said that to you when you're clearly hurting so badly. Uh, again, you're 24 years old. You have work. Uh, you can save some money while you're living at your parents' house. You can move. You can move on with your life and you can really uh, – you will come to see in time uh, the end of this relationship as a good thing for you and a good thing for her. Uh, what you're grieving is not – but you had uh, toward the end with her because it doesn't sound like you had much anymore. Uh, you guys weren't enjoying each other's time, enjoying each other's company. You were depressed. She was sexually dead uh, to you and it was really just inertia that was keeping you together. It was really just inertia and fond remembrances of a time when you were 18, 19, 20 and together and it was firing on all cylinders and you were in love and that love has died. And you're burying it, and it hurts, uh, but it is it is over. Um, and I am sorry, and I have been there. I have been right where you are, where a long-term relationship ended, and it needed to end, and we knew it needed to end, and yet we both sat there and cried because, because it wasn't going to be what we thought it was going to be for the first few years. It wasn't going to be forever. That doesn't mean those first few years weren't valuable. It doesn't mean we didn't learn and grow. It doesn't mean we didn't have good times. It didn't mean we couldn't still be friends, and we are. It just meant it wasn't going to be the lifelong relationship that we had kind of made an emotional investment in it being at one point. Uh, and that hurts. That hurts. That's what – that's the source of your pain right now. Your pain doesn't mean you need to cling to this woman and, and try to stay in this relationship and salvage it. Uh, what your pain means uh, – is that you're, you're coming apart. Your pain means that something has died uh, that cannot be revived and you need to accept it uh, and bury it and move on. And you should change your attitude. I, I know you're depressed. I'm glad you're in therapy. You should look into meds. Um, but you should also look on the fucking bright side. You're 24 fucking years old. You have a job. Uh, you have a, a good paying job. Not the job you want, but a job where you can save up a bunch of fucking money. You've been with one person since you were 18 or 19 years old. You can get out there. You can play the field. You can have some fun. You can find out who you are. You can be single for a while. There are worse things by far than being single and employed at 24 there are worse things than being single employed at 24 and living at your parents' house. There are worse things than getting dumped. 
Live a little. Get out there. Have some fun. Meet some other women. Spend some money on yourself. Save some money. Travel. Live a little. And in time, you'll feel better. You'll feel better about this. Time will pass. You'll, you'll be in a new relationship. You'll be in a better place. You'll, you'll have a better job. Uh, you'll feel better about yourself. Uh, and you'll be with somebody and you'll look back and then you'll be able to see this breakup as the best thing that could have happened and the right thing. Good luck. Happy New Year. So a couple of weeks back, we took a call from a woman who was giving a, you know, made a lovely mushroom casserole soup stew. I don't remember quite what it was, but she made something with mushrooms, fed it to her boyfriend, then gave him a blowjob. This is like the best girlfriend in the world. Here's some dinner and now I'm going to suck your dick. And when he came in her mouth uh, with his semen, uh, she noticed as, as he blew his load, uh, she noticed a, a piece of mushroom in her mouth and she assumed – and called in a panic, uh, wondering how this mushroom got from uh, the casserole to her boyfriend's mouth, to his stomach, to his semen. Because she assumed that he, that he blew this uh, mushroom into her mouth with his spunk uh, and wanted to know exactly how that worked. I told her it didn't work exactly like that. That in my considered opinion, uh, she had created suction. Uh, if she's any good at giving these blowjobs, she created a seal which created some suction which at the moment that he came – uh, that suction, that force in her own mouth that she created to pleasure him dislodged a piece of mushroom that was wedged between uh, a couple of her own teeth. And it was just a quinky dink, not uh, not a medical marvel. Uh, we got an email this week from Kevin who blogs at scienceblogs.com. Uh, he is uh, getting his PhD in immunology and he had some thoughts about the mysterious mushroom in the spunk. Joining us by phone right now, Kevin Bonham, a graduate student studying immunology who also blogs at scienceblogs.com. Uh, his blog is We Beasties. Um, you're studying at a, an institution of higher learning, which we shall not name, but it is uh, very well regarded. Let's just leave it there. Um, so, Kevin, you heard the call about uh, the mushroom in the semen, and, and you're a science guy. Is there any way, you know, a second opinion, could the mushroom have gotten from his guts to his nuts? Well, I think there's almost no chance that a large, solid chunk of mushroom could get from guts to nuts, except, as you mentioned, maybe if there was massive internal hemorrhaging. Uh, <laughs> but I think he might have noticed that. Yeah. There, there would have been blood and a whole lot worse in his semen if, 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 if he was hemorrhaging to such an extent that food was falling out of his stomach and into his, uh, into his dick and sh- flying out of it. There would have been kidneys and lung bits in there, too, for all we know. Not to mention stomach acid in the penis, I feel like, would cause a little bit of pain at least so uh, you're with me that it was probably a piece of mushroom in her own mouth that was dislodged during the blowjob yeah or possibly that she uh you know had a little bit of vomitus during the act and that could have dislodged some from her stomach back up into her mouth Ew, that's so much head. worse than my theory i don't like your theory your your, your other proposed uh, hypothesis at all that's very disturbing to me um but you, but you you actually wrote because it is possible for some shit to go from gut to nut and land in, in the other person's mouth. Do you want to explain how that works exactly? Yeah. So surprisingly, um, it turns out that allergens, uh, small molecules that can cause allergies in people, actually can be transmitted. So I found several studies uh, reported in the medical literature of um, men eating either um, medications like penicillin or food allergies such as Brazil nuts um, and actually then having sex with their partners and that allergen was transmitted in their semen and caused an allergic reaction in their uh, in their partners. So somebody who had a, 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 an, aller- an allergy to nuts, they didn't eat any nuts. Their partner ate some nuts and then later came in their mouth and the person with the nut allergy had the nut allergy freak out. Actually, the only reports that I could find were not uh, coming in their mouth was actually during vaginal intercourse, but that... Um, contact inside the vagina actually caused a uh, systemic allergic reaction. Wow. Are there any any other examples? Well, so I found for sure a Brazil nut allergy. There were um, examples of, like I said, penicillin, also a few other medications, um, an antipsychotic, uh, whose name I can't remember now, and um, also a chemotherapeutic agent that there's all reports of all of those um, in the medical literature. And in addition, you can actually be, uh, women can be allergic to the semen itself, the seminal plasma, 
uh, itself, but um, that's sort of a different thing. How, so how does that work? How, do, how does whatever the allergen in the nut is go from the gut to the nut, get into the semen, fly out of the dick, into the vagina, cause allergic reaction? How do, how do the allergens get into the semen? How does that process work? I know, I know all bodily fluids are basically a distillation of everything that's going into your body, but how do the allergens make that leap? Well, it's a good question. I wasn't able to find any specific information on that. It seems like that would be a rather hard thing to test. But probably what happens um, during digestion, food gets broken down into all of its component parts. Those small molecules are then absorbed and transmitted into the bloodstream. The fluid that ends up in semen is some of the same fluid that has been circulating in the blood. So those small molecules presumably can move from the gut to the blood, and then from the blood into the seminal fluid, and then be transmitted in an ejaculation. I've gotten questions over the years from people who say that their partners have had uh, topical allergic react. Their skins, rashes, like they blew a load on their partner's face, and then they're, they got red welts from mm-hmm. the semen. This would be the same process. A little bit, yeah. There's, so there's different types of allergic reactions that can occur. What you're describing sounds like a contact hypersensitivity, which is slightly different from an allergy, but um, it's sort of the same process. The immune system freaking out at something that shouldn't be a problem. And also, it's actually possible for something transmitted during uh, vaginal intercourse to cause a more whole body reaction. So there's examples of people breaking out in hives, people getting shortness of breath, accelerated heart rate. Uh, In fact, one woman they described actually went into full anaphylaxis, which is a sort of life-threatening condition. Do you know Um, know how many people who are partnered with hypochondriacs whose sex lives we have ruined by, by playing this conversation. Well, I apologize for that. <laughs> science is the science. The science is the science. Kevin Bonham, thanks so much. Uh, graduate student in immunology who blogs at Science Blogs. Look for Wee Beasties. Thanks for giving us a call, Kevin. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. So we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sorry we weren't able to play anybody's uh, comments on previous calls uh, this week but because we went along with uh, Dr. James Cantor. Once again, we want to thank Dr. James Cantor for joining us today. But you can always leave a comment and be assured that it will appear, at least in print, at thestranger.com slash lovecast, where there's a comment thread attached to every show. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a call or a question for a future podcast, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. And me and the Tech Heavy at Risk Youth will be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. 